0: Well, uh, Paul and I were talking, and we, we knew the schedule was coming up, and we knew Bob Russell was coming in, and we just really felt that we needed someone to come in and kind of set the ball on the tee for him. I mean, uh, he, you know, so I'm just glad that I'm not following someone like that. So, um, but again, you know, I'm Josh, like Paul said, and, and I get to hang out with students, and I have that incredible opportunity to minister with them. And, and before I get started here, I, I'm just going to be talking about kind of the gospel through a teenager's eyes and, and the way they kind of perceive it and some things that we can learn from teenagers. Now, I'm not a parent. I, I don't have that, that gift yet. I, I haven't had that opportunity yet to be a parent. And, and so I don't want to come across as telling you parents who, who honestly, I feel, have the hardest job in the world how to raise your kids, especially teenagers. And, and we ask the students to stay in the room instead of going to, to their small group uh, this morning because we want to talk to them too. And students, I'm not picking on you guys. Just remember I chose to work with you over anyone else, okay? That's important to remember. And so we're, we're, uh, we're coming at it from a, from a pretty cool perspective. Uh, I'm, able, I'm able to kind of have my feet in both worlds and kind of have some some observations. And so so hopefully uh, we can kind of look at some of the questions that teenagers have, and we can look at some of the biblical examples of what it means to be a teenager, what it means to be a student, and maybe we can learn something from that. Um, but But honestly... Things have been so cool this morning so far, I just don't want to get in the way. And so if you need to zone out and just like, just chill out because you're so excited about the baptisms or communion or worship, or whatever, that's great. I just feel so privileged just to be able to share with you guys uh, in this format. So, so if you're ready, let's get going. Um, the gospel according to teenagers. What does that even look like? What does that mean? Like I said, I, I have the privilege of working with teenagers. And if you've been around with teenagers, if you've raised teenagers, if you can remember back to your teenage years, you know that being a teenager is painfully, painfully awkward. Like, it is just horrible. Like, it, is just, it is just a rough time in your life to be a teenager. I remember my years as a teenager. You couldn't pay me enough money to go back and do middle school and high school over again. There's no way. And if you've been around me at all, I've come to realize that my own personal awkwardness actually enhances my ministry to teenagers. I am a, I'm a, I'm a kind of a bumbling idiot most of the time when i'm talking to you one-on-one like like you know maybe maybe you've picked up on this and you've come up to me and you said hi josh how you doing and i just kind of give you that blank stare. i'm trying to remember your name you know or or maybe you've seen me interact with someone and 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 maybe you just look at me and say this isn't the gap model that's normally up here sharing with us and and you know i mean he's a good looking guy and everything but, but I, you know, i'm just i'm just kind of awkward you know see some people really laughing at that you know um <laughs> but but uh, you know I, I just I I, I think that, that the teenage years are incredibly important, but they're incredibly incredibly difficult. And, and I I think back of, of of my own my own experience, and I, I've kind of kind of have an analogy for being a teenager. Being a teenager is kind of like the middle child place of life. It's kind of like you're stuck in between. Any, any middle child in this in the, in the stands out there, you know how horrible this is. And, and the reason for my middle childness—they're here today. They're the they're the, the the group that's acting like this is my first little league game, sitting there in the middle. But uh, but the middle child syndrome—that's tough, right? Because you're not the oldest, and so you don't get all the new stuff. You don't get all the freshness of everything. You don't have the grandparents spoiling you with everything crazy like because so you don't get the the oldest stuff but you're not the baby you're not like my wife who's the baby of the family who gets pampered to and coddled and catered to and just make sure everything needy needs are taken care of and you just see the parents just holding on to that baby child in some cases in some cases you see them kind of kicking them out the door but but you know the baby child is is very different and then you have the middle child See, the middle child is just stuck in between there. And that's exactly what a teenager is. They're not quite an adult, but they're definitely not a child, right? So, so they're kind of caught in between here. Now, now, if you think about it, a teenager will get their license, a very adult thing to do, but they'll, they'll have curfew or they'll have certain limitations or they'll have, you know, have to, certain kind of restrictions on their driving. Or, or my favorite example, if you've been around a teenager, especially a teenage boy, you'll realize that they smell quite a bit like an adult. They have the capability of smelling like an adult, but the inability to manage the odor, right? And so, and so if you've been around, especially middle school boys, like, like we'll go on trips and stuff, and like apparently they feel that Axe body spray is the equivalent of a shower. And so they'll just like just spray each other, and we'll do the big cloud, and they'll walk in and spin around, you know? And so, and so for, for, a, for a teenager, they're very much stuck in the middle there, right? They're, they're just kind of in between. They're very much awkward and just kind of stuck here, and they, they want to be an adult. They want their responsibility and control, but they're really not ready for it either. And so it's a very, very formative time. It's a very important time. It's, a, it's just a very difficult time as well. And, and all kidding aside, it's just a, those are hard years. And, and, so, and so one of the things that we want to do here at Genesis and, and, and in this community is make sure that we're aware of those needs. We don't want to cater specifically to those needs and create something separate but we want to be aware of those needs so that we can incorporate those teenagers. Not isolate them, but incorporate them. That's, that's something that's really important. Now, teenagers, you're sitting there. I'm picking on you a little bit. You know I love you guys. But here's a little secret for you. Adults, by, by, for the most part, by the wide margin, are utterly afraid of you. They, just, they, 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 are, they are fearful of talking to teenagers. If They're not your kid there's someone else's kid, you watch an adult talk to a teenager. It's like watching a train wreck, right? Like, you want to watch it, but you don't. Like, you just can't stop looking at it because you see the the adult trying to start a conversation, asking a lot of questions, and you see the kid, a lot of one-word answers, a lot of, you know, avoiding eye contact, a a lot of nervous laughter that is really translated as, please, creepy old person, leave me alone. And so, And so we see this a lot, right? We see this. Like, I experience this all the time. Like, I'm still pretty new here. I'm meeting kids. Like, hey, how you doing? What's your name? What's that? And they just walk away. And so that's how that goes. But, but, But if you watch these conversations... And adults, I, I know they're, they're tough for you. I know it's hard to walk up to someone you don't know, and especially hard when they're a younger person because you don't really know how to relate to them and different things like that. But I'm here to tell you that is one of the most important things you guys can ever do as, a, as an adult. And teenagers, they may act like they don't appreciate it, but they really do. They really do appreciate the fact, hey, there's an adult who's not my dad, who's not my mom, who's not my teacher or coach who knows my name, who knows my name and knows something about me. That's a big deal that's something important that gives them worth that gives them value. So, as an adult, here's the challenge. If you take one thing away, this is something you take away from this little little message here is if you can just interact with the student, if you can just learn their names, if you just go introduce yourself, it's going to be awkward the first time, but if you do that, that's going to that's going to mean something to them. That's build something. That's incredibly incredibly important. And so, one of the one of the reasons why I'm encouraging that is I don't want to create something that's separate, like I mentioned before. And we, we here at Genesis don't want to create generational silos of ministry. Now, I ministered out in Illinois in the middle of nowhere in a town in 2000 where the tallest building was literally a grain elevator, a silo. And so if you think about a silo, everything goes in until it's filled up and it goes in a separate one. And it's always separated and it's kind of self-contained. We don't want to do that in ministry here. We don't want to do something to where they're completely isolated from each other. Now, you're right. We don't want T-Rock, who's teaching over in Gen Kids right now, to come in here and do all the motions and everything with you guys. That probably wouldn't fly real well. And I shouldn't go over to Gen Kids and teach them the way I'm teaching you. There's some, there's some sensitivity there, but ultimately, we want to be an entire family. We don't want to be separate. And there's a lot of metaphors in the Bible about family. There's a lot of examples of what it means to be a family. In fact, we as a body refer to family over and over again. We look at God as the Father. We look at the, as God is the perfect true father who, who disciplines lovingly, who guides, who protects, who, who, who administers love, grace, and justice all at the same time. Now, for you, dad may not have that picture. Dad may have not filled those qualifications or those, those character traits, or maybe he was great at it. But the true father, our God in heaven, fulfills all of those perfectly. And we see that, that we are the children of God that we're co-heirs, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, that we're kind of on the same level of Jesus, in the same way that Jesus was the son of God, we are all sons and daughters of God. We are all created in his image. We've all been loved by him, been given the ability to connect with him. And so there's a very, very much a family-type picture that's being painted here. You you may have come from a church background where where they refer to each other as brother and sister, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. And so there's just, again, a reinforcement of this family picture in the Bible. Now, there's really not many metaphors about teenagers. There's there's really no place where we can look at, hey, there's a story talking about teenagers and how they fit into this family. And so I know teenagers sometimes feel a little bit left out anyway, because we don't really know what to do with them. Do we put them with the little kids? Do we put them with the adults? But I think there's a great example of how to minister to teenagers in the Bible. If you have a Bible, we're going to kind of camp out in Matthew for a second before we move over to Mark. Uh, but in Matthew chapter 4, we see a picture of Jesus. And I like to think of Jesus in this instance as kind of the first youth minister. As someone who is connecting with young people in a way that's, that's very different from that culture. And so in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse uh, 19, we, we see this line of Jesus talking to some of these young people. Probably teenagers. He says, come follow me and i will make you fishers of men i will make you fishers of men jesus is this invitation it's a simple command it's a simple request and the crazy thing is if you really think about it is that that people respond that from this request and others like it a team of 12 is built a team of 12 young men say yeah i'm gonna do this this guy that I don't really know that well, that maybe I've never even met, just came up and invited me to come along and follow him through who knows what. Yep, I'm signing up for that. I'm on board. And they do it. And they leave everything behind. Now, if you know teenagers, this isn't completely shocking to you. This isn't completely shocking. It's, you know, teenagers sometimes aren't always, uh, sometimes guilty of not thinking things through. You know, Sometimes. they're they're not they're not always they don't always see it from every different perspective but something teenagers are is they're very very passionate by nature now now that may that may be an outward passion that may be a good thing like they're self-serving or self-sacrificing or maybe a self-centered thing but but teenagers are predisposed to passion and predisposed to to buying into something so here right here we see some teenagers buying into something and so, and so maybe that first question that you have is like me is, well, why in the world would they follow? Why in the world would these guys drop everything and follow this guy that they just met? Well, Jesus at this point is seen as a rabbi. He's seen as a religious leader. And in that society, this is the highest point of esteem. This is the highest standing in that society. It was the most respected person around. And so a rabbi comes up to these people who are just blue-collar, working a, work a shift, just doing their dad's business, apprentice, being an apprentice and learning the trade, and this highly respected person comes up to him and invites them. You need to understand the education system a little bit here. The education system was built entirely around the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible called the Torah. And in the education system, you started by learning the Torah. You started by learning the Torah and eventually memorizing all five books of the Torah. Now, if you were good enough at that, they would advance you on to the next stage, where you learned all the opinions and writings and commentaries of all the other rabbis through history and what they had to say about those five books. And if you were good enough at that, you were given the opportunity to go to a rabbi and say, can I become your disciple? And the rabbi was left with a choice. The rabbi was left with a choice of saying yes or no, and if he was saying yes, you can join me, he is essentially saying, I believe that you, the student, can become a rabbi like me. And so these people that would become the 12 disciples, these young men, these teenage boys, were passed over multiple times leading up to this point. They're fishing. They're working the family business. They're learning a trade, because at some point in that educational system, someone said to them, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not cut out for this. Go learn how to fish. Go get out of here. They were rejected. They were told they weren't good enough. And so Jesus, a rabbi, comes to them, doesn't expect them to come to him, but comes to them and says, I want you to follow me. Completely opposite of the traditional system. I want you to follow me. And so, of course, these 12 guys do it. The most respected person in the, in the society is giving me an opportunity to do what he's doing? Yes, I'm in. He thinks I can do it. He's giving me worth. He's giving me value. I have to do this. Now, of course, this involves a lot of risk on Jesus' part. This involves a lot, a lot of risk. He's handing a lot of authority to some people who weren't the smartest, to some people who weren't the best at what they were doing. He handed a lot of power, a lot of responsibility to to some kids who probably weren't ready for it. Jesus takes a big risk here. And the thing that we're going to look at this morning as we move on here is, is during that risk, during that process, what questions come up from the disciples to Jesus? And what questions does Jesus ask the disciples? Because I believe that questions are incredibly important to a teenager. If a teenager's asking questions, I think that's a huge win. I think that's great, because if we believe that the truth really is the truth, if the gospel really is what it says it is, then if they're searching, they're going to find it. If they're searching, they're going to find the truth. If that search is real, and if there are people in that student's life who, who are saying the right thing, and more importantly, perhaps, living the right thing, then of course they're going to find the truth. And so a teenager will often learn through questions. They want to own it. They want to they search it out for themselves. And so if we can teach students to ask questions, and if we can get students to respond to, to respond to our questions, that's a huge win for us in the ministry. That's a huge win for us. And I think it's a win for families as well to get students to ask those questions. And so, so these, 12, these 12 teenagers are asking questions. And there's some fears, and there's some things that we want to draw out this morning. And the first one is, is that these teenagers, these 12, and I would say all teenagers are afraid of alienation. They're afraid of being alone. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to Mark, a, a book to the right there. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29, we see how this process is happening. We see the disciples following Jesus, and we see some formation beginning to happen. And Jesus asks them a big question here. Starting in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Being a teenager is hard. There are a lot of questions that are asked of a teenager, whether explicitly or implicitly, whether by word or action. Teenagers get asked questions all the time by their peer groups. And these questions are usually, are you with us? Do you agree with me? Are you gonna come alongside me here? Sometimes that's very positive, sometimes that's very negative. And for a teenager, they don't wanna be alienated. They don't wanna be left out, they don't wanna be singled out, they don't wanna be made to be all alone. And so here in this passage, Jesus realizes this. He says, who do you say that I am? And then they respond by just kind of giving a survey of what's popular. And Jesus is essentially saying, no, I don't care or what everyone else is saying. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and answers, you are the Christ. I kind of imagine a pause there, a pause after that question, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up, steps out in the face of that alienation, in the face of being alone, and answers the question. See, see there's, there's, there's a huge desire on the the part of students to be safe in their identity. There's a huge desire to be safe in their identity. It's a time where they're searching for who they are. And once they get there, they want to know that they're okay. They want to know that they're not alone in this. And so from our perspective, from a a student ministry perspective, some of the things that we're trying to do is not just tell them right things or just read them scripture or or just dispense truth like it's some sort of like salve or prescription medicine, what we're trying to do is say, this is what, the, what, what Jesus is talking about. We believe it to be true, and we're living our lives accordingly. And if you would like to join us in that, we would love that, and we would love to join you in that. And so we try to find a way to come alongside of them. And in that, there's inherent risk. There's an inherent risk that the students are gonna miss it. The students are gonna say, no, I'm not gonna come alongside you. But I think there's a bigger risk in us as leaders of missing the point and not giving a safe example. But that's a risk that I think that we have to take. Because oftentimes we kind of get caught in extremes where we think we have to give them total freedom, we have to give students total freedom, teenagers total freedom to make their own decisions and learn from their mistakes. And then the other extreme is, is we have to wrap them in bubble wrap and put, you know, reflective tape on them and, and, and never let them leave the house and talk to anyone and, and ever, ever do anything ever, ever, ever. You know, we, we, we kind of come, come to these two extremes and there's, there's a place in the middle that we have to find as a community, as we raise, raise teenagers, to figure out what's healthy. Because teenagers feel alienation. They don't want to be singled out. They don't want to think that they're all alone in this. And the family of God is designed to, to reinforce the fact that we're not alone in this. So that's fear number one, that fear of alienation. The second one is that teenagers fear being vulnerable. They fear vulnerability. They fear the fact that they think that they, think that they, uh, they might have these hard questions coming at them, and they're afraid to answer them because they may give something of themselves that they're not really ready to share. And there's a section of Scripture in Mark chapter 9. Verse 33 and 34, that kind of exemplifies this. And, and, and here's, a, here's a place where, the, where these teenagers, young, young men, get caught. Starting in verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So Jesus is catching these teenagers in a mistake. He's catching them in sin. He's catching them in pride and, and jockeying for position. And Jesus is catching these teenagers, and they're silent. You know, if you're a parent, you know this look. You know the look when you catch your kid in a lie. You catch your kid and, you know, right in the middle of it. You know that blank stare. You know that broken look on their eyes. Maybe, maybe when they were real little, they would just burst out into tears. Or, or maybe they would just try to def- get defensive or whatever that looks like. But parents, you know what that's like to catch a kid in trouble. And get them to a point where there's nowhere else to go. They have to admit it. And that's what Jesus just did did right there. And, And what happens is, is Jesus is taking control away from those disciples. He's kind of taking what they thought to be right. They thought this was all about jockeying for position. And Jesus kind of says, no, that's not it. And kind of rocks their boat for a second. Because teenagers really like control. You know, they're no longer a kid. They're no longer a child where everything was given to them, where everything was taken care of, all their needs were met. But they're not quite an adult where they have total freedom. And they're really struggling in between there. And so teenagers really like to know what's going on. They really like to have control over situations, They like to be informed. They really like the status quo. You know, sometimes we think that young people really, really like change. I've found that teenagers are very resistant to change. They don't, they don't really like a lot of surprises. You think back to your school years or your child's child's years, maybe you have an experience with this where a new student moves in or a new student joins a program or a youth ministry or a scout scout group or whatever it is. And, and all of a sudden, there's kind of a, an uneasiness about this new person, where they're going to fit in. And if that group's a tight-knit group, it, it's really, really kind of hard. All because teenagers really enjoy understanding the status quo and having that control over situations. So teenagers really fear that vulnerability. They really fear that. And, and here's, here's kind of the, the Mr. Obvious moment of the morning. Teenagers really, really are really driven by the perception of others, they really care about what other people think about them. They really care about that. Last night, we had an event, and uh, it was, it was, we, had a, we had a great time but but through the course of the night, we did some really really goofy games like we did some some really idiotic things. Like one of the adults says, we should videotape this. And I'm like, no, no, that's a horrible idea. Like, like you know, I'm gonna be up there and Ben will edit it some way and I'll like do something weird and he'll figure out a way to embarrass me even more. And like, I don't wanna videotape this. We're doing some really, really goofy things. And, and so right there, I'm, I'm being fearful of vulnerability. But the reason that we do those goofy games is to kind of break down that need to be seen in a positive way by students. If we can get all the students to be idiots together, if we can get them all to be goofy together, and students back there are kind of looking at each other like, oh, that's what he's doing. Yeah, okay. But if we can get them all to be kind of goofy together, suddenly they're more comfortable with each other. Suddenly they say, oh, he's an idiot too. <laughs> all right, now I can talk to this person. And so, and so that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to break down some of those barriers that, that are really, really natural in a teenager's life so, because, they, because they fear vulnerability. Uh, the, the last fear that we really bring out here that I think is really, really key, is the fact that uh, the teenagers fear the unknown. They fear the future. You know, in, in school systems, you know, there's, there's kind of, a, kind of a, a pressure that's building in the education system. And I think teachers are really under the gun with, with, with standardized testing and different things, so I don't think it's just the teacher's fault. I think it's a combination of number, number of things where students are suddenly pressured to achieve. There's a pressure to plan to know what you're doing after you graduate high school, to know what you're doing after you go to college, or, or if you're going to college, what are you going to do there? And there's, there's kind of a pressure that continues to build on a student's life that's really unhealthy. And, and, and it comes to a point where, where it's, not, it's not anymore about, about doing your best, it's about you know, achieving something or achieving a certain score. And so it's finding ways to understand that. And, and from a ministry perspective, we never want to create something that's achievement-based. We never want to create something that, that where they have to achieve something in order to be a part of the group, or they have to, to accomplish something, or there's a pressure involved with following Christ, because obviously there's none of that there. But, but this fear of the future comes out in Mark chapter 13, verses 3 through 4, and uh, we have a private conversation here. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, john and andrew asked him privately tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled we have four apostles four teenagers taking the adult taking the leader aside taking jesus the first youth minister aside and saying hey what's gonna happen hey can you just tell me what's gonna happen can you tell me what I should look for that's going to tip off that, those last events? I know everything's going to end, everything's going to be fine, but I'd really like to know what's going to happen. Because they're afraid of the unknown. They're afraid of what's going to happen. They want to get everything lined up. There, there's this pressure to get to that point, so they want to maybe accomplish something before they get there, or they want to they succeed in a certain way before they get there, but there's this, there's this building fear of what's going to happen. There's this building fear of, of, of the future. And, and I think that teenagers react to this differently. You know, some of them will, will kind of reject that and kind of, kind of withdraw. Or some will, some will kind of enter into a life where they're just completely driven for, for grades or for, for athletics or whatever it is. And, and they just become kind of servants to this idea of achieving something, all because they're afraid of what's around the corner. Now, if you look at these three fears, this fear of alienation, this fear of being left out, singled out, You look at this fear of of vulnerability, being kind of afraid to kind of lower that barrier, afraid to share. And you look at that fear of the unknown, fear of the future, or giving into that pressure to, to, to achieve something. If you look at those three fears, alienation, vulnerability, unknown, I don't think those are really exclusive to teenagers. I don't think that teenagers are the only ones that are driven by how other people perceive them. I don't think that teenagers are the only ones that are worried about how something comes across. I don't think they're the only ones that ask the question, can I trust you? I don't think they're the only ones that ask the question, if I go to that, am I gonna have to sit by myself? I don't think that they're the only ones that that are worried about how things are gonna play out. Because if we think about it, I think we all have these fears. I think we are all kind of driven by what people think about us. I think we're all kind of driven by, by, by how things are going to end up. You know, I, I don't have to tell you that there's a lot of uncertainty about the future for many of us, for many of you. Maybe it's, maybe it's with the job, maybe it's the retirement fund. There's, there's a lot of questions, the, the legitimate, practical questions about what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen in a few years. There's legitimate questions there. I'm not saying that those should be ignored. But what I'm saying is, is that perhaps we shouldn't be driven by them. Perhaps we shouldn't allow them to consume us. You know, maybe, maybe you're like me and you're still kind of new to this community. You're just kind of figuring it out and trying to remember names and stuff. Maybe for you, there's a, there's a big fear of, hey, if I sign up for a connection group, is anyone going to talk to me? Am I going to have to go sit on the couch by myself? Like, like is it going to be awkward? Are they going to expect me to share my life story? Do I have to get really, really vulnerable with them right away? I think those are very legitimate fears. I think that's it's, it's natural to some degree, but I think what happens when we allow those fears To kind of run our lives we start missing the point really really quick We start missing the point really fast So maybe we need to start asking ourselves what kind of questions should I be asking In the midst of those fears in the midst of those moments where we get really anxious about something Maybe we should be asking ourselves. How can I contribute? How can I become more a part of this family this community? whether it's a Genesis or another church, but how can I become more a part of this? Because ultimately, if I'm not contributing something, we all lose. If, if you're not bringing something, if you're not allowing yourself to be a part of it, you're drawing away from the group. You're, you're, you're kind of you're being selfish. And so how can I contribute more? What am I holding back? What am I not allowing myself to share? What pain or difficulty could I share that could really help someone who's in the midst of it? What thing could I allow someone just to pray with me about? And maybe this starts small. I'm not asking you to, to share your testimony with everyone. Maybe it starts small and just saying to someone that you trust, that you've gotten to know, or maybe someone you don't know real well, just say, hey, could you pray for me on Tuesday? And that's it. Because maybe you got a job interview on Tuesday. Or maybe you're meeting with your boss, you're afraid you're going to get fired. But just asking someone, you don't have to give all the details, but just starting small and finding a way to share but the most important question besides these three fears besides these three fears the most important question is the question that Jesus asked and Peter answered who do you say that I am I, I believe that Jesus is asking us this question daily in every moment who do you say that I am what does your life say do you worship me or someone else Do you worship me or something else What what do your words say? What do your actions say? Who do you say that I am? Because ultimately, that's the question. That's the most important question. So as we wrap up here, as we start to think about what kind of questions we need to be asking, as we kind of start thinking about what kind of questions we, we should allow ourselves to be asked by God, my prayer for you, my hope for us, for myself, is that we can reach a point where we're not driven by these questions of fear and anxiety, these questions of pressure and achievement, these, these questions of, of what ifs, that we, we don't allow ourselves to not trust God because we're fearful, that we don't allow ourselves to argue about something because we're not giving glory and honor to Jesus Christ, and that we allow our lives and actions to, to respond to that most important question of who do you say that I am? with only glory, with only credit, with only power and praise and honor to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so may we as a community start to ask ourselves tough questions and start to understand where our questions of fear and anxiety are really coming from and realize that there's a better way. There's a lot better way. Let's pray. Father God, uh, Lord, I just, uh, I thank you so much just for this community. Lord, I, I thank you that, that we're able to share in baptism and communion, that we're able to worship in so many different ways. And Father, as, as, um, as we go about this life together, uh, Lord, encourage us, show us new ways to become more part of this community, to become more a part of this community. Lord, if we can learn something from teenagers, from, from, from all the, the, the hard years that they have in front of them, Lord, let us, let us realize that we, we need each other and Lord, let us realize that when you ask, and you always ask, who do, I, who do you say that I am, that we can respond in a way that gives you glory and honor. It's in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.